And now a message from Jill and Joe. Jill and I want to send our warmest Easter greetings to you and your family. As we celebrate this most holy day, we know many are still going without familiar comforts of the season. The virus is not gone, and so many of us still feel the longing and loneliness of distance. For a second year, most will be apart from their families, their friends, the full congregations that fill us with joy. And yet, as the Gospel of John reminds us, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We share the sentiments of Pope Francis, who said that getting vaccinated is a moral obligation, one that can save your life and the lives of others. By getting vaccinated and encouraging your congregations and your communities to get vaccinated, we not only can beat this virus, we can also haste the day when we can celebrate the holidays together again. This Easter, from our family to yours, we wish you health, hope, joy, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding. Wait, that was an Easter speech? What about Jesus? Hi, you're listening to Write From Karen. My name's Karen. This podcast is about a little bit of everything. My life, my writing, book reviews, politics, and religion. Grab a cup of coffee and get comfortable. I have a lot to say about nothing. So yes, ladies and gentlemen, that is from our esteemed person in the White House. (laughs) I hesitate to call him president because he's not my president, but I guess it's he's the president of the United States for now, at least him and Jill giving their heartfelt wishes to the American people out there Getting a vaccine is your moral obligation, because if you do not, you're being selfish. You know what? I'm selfish. I'm not going to get it. I'm going to, I'm going to pass. Thank you. And um, I will wait until it has gone through its proper channels and its proper trials. And when you can prove to me that it's okay to take, I will consider it. Thanks. That's my message back to you, Joe. But how sad is it that they are, they can't even go, they can't even put the political crap aside for just a moment and wish everyone a happy Easter. If you are a Christian, this is a big deal. This is a big holiday. It's when Christ raises from the dead. This is a big deal. (laughs) And to uh, not even mention Christ at all in that message to people says a couple of things. One, I don't think he even believes in the holiday, which fine, whatever. If that's your belief, that's your belief, but don't pretend. Two, it's a moral obligation for you to get the vaccine. You have to push it on one of the holiest holidays for Christians. I think that's poor taste, Joe. Poor taste. But what do I know? I mean, him and Jill both have some pretty poor taste. Have you seen Jill and her latest uh, fish, fish stockings or whatever you want to call them? Fishnet stockings? They're not really fishnet stockings, but 
I hate to call them, I don't want to call them stripper stockings, but it kind of gives you that visual, doesn't it, when I say that? I personally am not a fan, but hey, man, you do. You do you, boo. If you want to go ahead and wear those, you be my guest. But it's ridiculous that a woman of your age is trying to act like a younger, a younger woman and failing miserably. You're trying too hard, Jill. Scale it back a couple of notches or 10. Anyway, so that kind of, uh, kind of puts a sour taste in my mouth from the Bidens. Um, speaking of Biden, Biden declares war on millions of law-abiding gun owners. Joe Biden announced Thursday that he wants a new rule against ghost guns, another to blend the definitions of pistols and rifles, a nationwide promotion of red flag laws that allow people to be banned from having guns based on someone else's negative feelings and more. Here we go with the feelings again. Many are calling it a war on Americans. The Washington Examiner described Biden's slate of gun actions as a compendium of what the president believes he can accomplish through executive action. Biden called gun violence in America an epidemic. Because, of course, everything's a health epidemic now, a health crisis. But the Second Amendment Foundation warned he will not be allowed to bend or break the Constitution. The devil will be in the details, said SAF founder and executive vice president Alan Gottlieb. Our legal team will review them and we will we are prepared to file suit if Biden and his administration steps over their legal authority. Gottlieb recalled that Biden has been a promoter of gun control throughout his nearly 50 years in Washington. He featured gun control as a major part of his presidential campaign last year, and he has met with representatives from gun control groups since taking office. Nobody from the Biden administration has reached out to us or any other rights organization, to my knowledge, which certainly clarifies Biden's approach to firearms regulation, Gottlieb said. He came into office talking about unity, but he just declared war on tens of millions of law-abiding gun owners who have committed no crimes. SAF confirmed that if the administration goes beyond what is allowed under the Constitution, legal action is a certainty. Uh, Let's see here. So, once again, Biden is after the guns. Which, again, if you look at the bigger picture, which I feel like the Democrats never do, it's always about the here and now. It's always about what I want, how I feel. Um, this makes no sense, really. I can't even, I mean, I, I try to look at both sides of the story, but even looking at their argument, it really just makes no sense. So you're telling me that if you take all the guns away, that there will never be another shooting again. There will never be another crime with a gun. So you're telling me that people being people, flaws and all, that the criminals are going to know, oh, hey, I see you have a pretty strict gun law there. Well, in that case, here are my guns. I will never commit another crime. So you're telling me that these criminals are going to go along with it. No big deal. When in actuality, the reality of the situation is you take the guns away and those people are going, we're going to be sitting ducks. 
for all the criminals out there to do with what they will, because we will have no defense. That is evil, okay? And that's immoral to set people up for victimhood, basically. So I've heard also that several states have done away with the conceal and carry laws. Um, and if you go into any pawn shop, at least in the Midwest, I have no idea what it's like on the, the coast states. There are no guns to be found. Guns are in short supply right now because everybody's buying them up in anticipation of Biden doing what he does, which is take everybody's rights away. Because it's not about protection. It's about control. So the government takes your guns away and you have no way of defending yourself against them. So we'll see how this turns out. I hope that everybody fights against it. You know, my husband brought up a good point about the amendments to the Constitution. You know, um, I think Biden said they're only a suggestion, which in some ways he's right. For instance, the prohibition um, era when alcohol was against the law, that was an amendment to the Constitution. And there was so much backlash and uproar over that that they um, got a, they did away with it. So it's possible to get rid of an amendment to the Constitution. And I think that's the path that Joe's trying to go down. So I don't know. We'll see what kind of fight he has against that. I'm hoping that he's in the minority as most of his policies and ideas are in the minority with the American people, but it's hard to gauge how people are feeling when they don't speak up about it. At some point, we have to stop being kicked around like dogs. We're going to have to start fighting back. And we got to start somewhere because the, the longer we stay silent, the harder it's going to be to get these rights back. So it's just something to think about for the future. Um, let's see. What is, what is encouraging, though, about this whole Biden fiasco leadership, I use that term loosely, is that some Democrats are actually starting to fight back on this. Thank God there are some normal Democrats out there and I, and I honestly do feel sorry for you normal Democrats out there. I know not all Democrats are far left, just like not all Republicans are far right. Um, but it's, it's encouraging to see some people stand up and put their foot down and try to stop this madness. Um, but Democrats throw roadblock in front of Biden's extreme agenda. Two senators confirm they are unwilling to blow up filibuster. Joe Biden, while campaigning for president, was all about unity and bipartisanship. Since taking office, he has insisted his proposals are bipartisan, even if no Republicans vote for them. The Hill noted the White House has shrugged off the criticism, vowing to take big actions at a critical moment to help the economy and address inequality and other needs it says have been ignored for too long. That go-it-alone agenda, however, has hit a road bump. Two Democrats have confirmed they are unwilling to change the Senate's filibuster rule, which requires 60 votes to advance most legislation. <laughs> 
The two Democrats are Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kristen Sinema of Arizona. Manchin wrote in a commentary this week that the filibuster is a critical tool to protecting the voice of small and rural states and our democratic form of government. I have said it before and will say it again to remove any shred of doubt. There is no circumstance in which I will vote to eliminate or weaken the filibuster. The time has come to end these political games and to usher a new era of bipartisanship where we find common ground on the major policy debates facing our nation, he wrote. Samina's view is similar. When you have a place that's broken and not working, and many would say that's the Senate today, I don't think the solution is to erode the rules, Samina said in a report of the Wall Street Journal. I think the solution is for senators to change their behavior and begin to work together, which is what the country wants us to do. Senate Democrats, as recently as a few years ago when they were in the minority, affirmed their support for the filibuster. Now with a one-vote majority, they need the vice president's vote to break a 50-50 tie. They are considering ways to dispense with the long-standing rule. That's even though the Democrats have used the procedure hundreds of times in recent years. Just the News analyzed, leaving the filibuster in place in a 50-50 Senate would make it virtually impossible for Biden to move key parts of his agenda through Congress. The filibuster, however, would likely not stop Biden's $2 trillion American jobs plan, given the Senate parliamentarian's recent ruling that the massive infrastructure package may be considered under budget reconciliation rules, which permit the passage of legislation with a simple majority vote. But other major initiatives by Biden, including the nationalization of election laws and LGBT rights, would need 60 votes. Biden is also pushing gun control, and Democrats has talked of statehood for the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico, which would give the Democratic Party four more Democratic senators. Because that's their plan, and has been their plan for a while, and a plan that may succeed, actually, this next election, they are massaging and manipulating these rules to their advantage with the ultimate goal of never losing another election, which is so scary to think about. So it's even more important now more than ever that everybody pay attention to what is going on, not only on their local level, but in 2022 when a lot of these senators are up for reelection. Because we need some more Republicans in the House and the Senate, both so that we can stop this uh, bulldozer that Biden has become with all of his radical agendas that will eventually, if not now or sooner, hurt the, the country. I think he's proven that his loyalty is not with the American people. It's with anybody but America. It's America last. That is Biden's mantra. Um, Certainly by his actions alone, he's proven that America is not high on his priority list. You American people, you peasants, I'm not here to protect you. I'm not here to make your life easier or more more prosperous. I'm here to serve China's interest. And I'm here to allow these immigrants to come in from Mexico because that's a bigger voter base. You peasants, haven't you figured it out by now? Well, 
he's doing a good job of doing it and we're letting him do it that's what's even more scary and and disturbing and disgusting to me is that we're just we're just bending over and grabbing our ankles i'm tired of it not gonna do it anymore hence this podcast (laughs) hence me torturing you all for listening thanks for listening by the way (laughs) um there's a little bit of a a plan I'm not sure if I should reveal the plan. I feel like I'm letting the secret out, like I'm letting the cat out of the bag here. Uh, Not really. I mean, you can find this anywhere. But there's a little bit of a sneaky plan for Trump to get back in the White House. Now, okay, I have mixed feelings about that, okay? I am not a Trump hater, okay? So don't, you Trump lovers out there, don't get upset with me. I don't hate the man. I don't dislike the man. He's done a lot of good for our country. There's no question. And would I have rather seen him in office than Sleepy Joe? Oh, 100%. Yes, of course. However, Trump is not a very eloquent speaker. And he, he, he ruffles a lot of feathers and just the way he approaches things, the way he says things, it's just, he's, he's a little bit of a bull in a china shop. And the thought of him running in 2024, I'm against that, not because of him as a person, or if, of him as his presidential abilities and his vision, which I agree with, but I feel like he just turns so many people off that they're going to, I think the majority of people will just turn to anybody but Trump, which I feel like kind of is what happened this last election. Um, if you can call it election, I use that term loosely. I think a lot of people voted for Biden just because they were tired of hearing Trump and his bloviated opinions of himself and his accomplishments, which, to be fair, he had a lot of accomplishments. I'm not saying he didn't. I'm just saying I wish he was more of a statesman, someone with a little more finesse, a little more class, Um, you know, speaking and not putting people on the defensive automatically so that they just shut out the rest of what he says. I would like to have someone in there like DeSantis, for instance. I think he would be a fantastic candidate. Um, He's strong. He's articulate. Uh, He doesn't back down from bullies. He's proven that time and time again with his policies in Florida. And I think he would be a great candidate. Between the two, I'd much rather see DeSantis run for president just because I think that he would be received more. um, People would be more willing to receive him as the candidate as they would for Trump. So I'm not opposed to Trump running again. I just think given the choice of him and pretend or potentially losing the presidency again, I'd rather have someone in there that could win. Um, and so they, you know, we could get the country back on track, basically. But this plan, I have to admit, it's pretty clever. I mean, I don't think it's gonna happen. But it's it's kind of a it's kind of a fun way of thinking, in my opinion. So This is a a news article from the newamerican.com. Idea of Trump becoming House Speaker or President in 2023 gaining traction. Um, So basically, 
Let's see if I can read this. This is kind of a long article. I don't want to read the whole thing, but the crux of it is, here's how it could play out. In 2022, the American people are expecting Republicans to take the Congress back. It's ever so close right now. Biden is not just making me sick. I'm sure he's having the same effect on multitudes. What's next? Once we have the House and Senate, we can impeach Joe Biden and Kamala Harris for high crimes and misdemeanors, not phony ones like they had to manufacture against President Trump, but real weighty crimes. That would leave House Speaker Kevin McCarthy as President of the United States, only temporarily. As President, he could appoint anyone in the interim he chose as Vice President. He would select Donald J. Trump in early 2023. Then McCarthy would resign, leaving Trump as president. After all, who would have more experience and wisdom? That's how we could get Trump five more years if we play our cards right. The path is fraught with difficulties. This will be a tough challenge, and the best president of the United States is not getting any younger. We must do this to make American great again. America has much more than Joe Biden and Kamala Harris to worry about. China is a real threat, and so is big tech. Nobody but Trump is up to the challenge. I mean, I guess. I don't know if I agree that nobody else is up to the challenge. But Trump definitely proved that he can do it. And I'm sure he could do it again. Um, it would it would be nice to it would be fun to see these talking heads on the left. It would be fun to kind of see their heads explode a little bit if he got back into office. Um, let's let's all admit that it's been a little boring without him. But I don't know, and that's an interesting. I never thought I never I never even knew that you could appoint anyone you wanted to to be vice president. Or not vice president, I'm sorry, um, speaker of the house. That seems like a really weird loophole. <laughs> I mean, not that I know what the qualifications or criteria are for that job, but okay, sure. Sounds like a far-fetched, crazy conspiracy theory, but kind of an interesting one to think about. I think you all know me well enough by now to know that I have to talk about the experimental injectable. I have to. It's it's in my DNA. <laughs> um, our local city, our local city, the city I'm in, um, held a vaccine fair, basically, where people could come in and get the jab. Um, they were expecting 10,000 about 6,100 showed up in two days, um, which, whatever. I mean, it's more than I would have hoped. I was kind of hoping that, like, nobody would show up. That'd be kind of fun and sweet. But uh, 6,100 people did show up for the Johnson & Johnson jab. And um, I don't know, man. I hope you're okay. There was actually a girl, let's see. I saw on Twitter, she was talking about how she got the vaccine three days after her Johnson and Johnson jab. Um, which, duh, I mean, 
there's been no guarantees that you won't get the vex or you won't get the COVID and you won't transmit COVID after you have the vaccine and you still have to wear a mask and you still have to social distance. So I don't know why any logical person, any sound minded person would even want to get the jab at this point if nothing's going to change, because I'm pretty sure that's the majority of the reason why people want to get the jab because they want to go back to normal. But I think the government is having a really hard time allowing that to happen. We're just going to have to stand up and make it happen. Um, I know the poor people in Canada, I don't know what is going on with you Canadians, but you got some serious crap going on up north. Um, there was a pastor of a church that was arrested. And when he was released, he went back to his church only to find a fence was erected around his church. A fence. So he could not get in. Nobody could get into the church to worship. Think about that for a minute. What right does the government have to do that? Now, I don't know what kind of rights they have or don't have in Canada. But boy, if that happened in America, there would be a lot of upset people. I hope anyway, I don't know anymore. I kind of wonder, but would people even say anything? People are just so sheeple nowadays and so compliant and timid, scared, unfortunately. There was another um, viral video that was out this week from Canada. I think it was a, she was a restaurant owner and the health inspectors had gone into her restaurant to shut her down. And they were trying to give her all these official documents and she was not having it. And eventually the other customers of the restaurant caught caught on to what was happening and they all began chanting, get out, get out, like nonstop. And they finally ran them out of the restaurant. That goes along with another viral video of a pastor of a church over Passover weekend holding a service and again a health official came in with five police officers to intimidate him and he yelled at them to get out don't come back unless you have a warrant and unfortunately it's sad but I think we've reached that point in our history where we just have to fight back and put our foot down and say no you're not going to bully me you're not going to do this it's not right and I, I really do feel for the Canadians. It, it just looks like it's an absolute mess up there. They've been locked down for so long. And they've, they've put these crazy laws into place that now 53% of Canadians are the brink of insolvency. 53% of Canadians are on the verge of insolvency and are $200 or less away from not being able to pay their monthly bills and obligations while 25% took on more debt during the pandemic, according to a new, new survey by MNP. The news comes as Canada's MNP Consumer Debt Index hits a five-year high and is a 10-point jump from a December survey. The anxiety Canadians are feeling about making ends meet or already unable to do so tells us we may eventually see an avalanche of households falling behind on payments or defaulting on loans, mortgages, car payments, or credit cards. I I can't imagine what that must be like. I bet that's so stressful. But but what other what other outcome does government officials what do they expect? 
when you lock things down and you don't allow business to flourish, people lose their jobs. They can't pay their bills. It's not rocket science. I don't understand why people act so surprised that this is the outcome of this craziness this past year. Um, also, one in three COVID-19 survivors diagnosed with brain or mental health disorder within six months of infection. A massive study conducted during the pandemic estimates one in three COVID-19 survivors were diagnosed with a neurological or psychiatric condition within six months of infection. The study published Tuesday in the peer review journal, the Lancelet Psychiatry used more than 230,000 electronic health records of COVID-19 patients, mostly in the U.S., looking at 14 different brain and mental health disorders. Well, first of all, how do they get access to 230,000 electronic health records? Aren't those protected? Wouldn't that be a violation of HIPAA laws for them to get access to all these records? Who gave them permission to look at these records? 34% of survivors were diagnosed with at least one of these conditions, with 13% of these people being their first recorded neurological or psychiatric diagnosis. Mental health diagnoses were most common among patients, with 17% diagnosed with anxiety and 14% diagnosed with a mood disorder. Let's break this down, shall we? First time. These people were diagnosed with these kinds kinds of conditions. Why? Could it be? Just entertain the possibility. Think outside the box for just one moment. Why people who have never been diagnosed with these kinds of issues before are now suddenly experiencing these issues? Could it be possibly that we have locked people down and in their houses like animals for the last year? Could it be that we have prohibited people from socializing with one another? Preventing people from getting together for family get togethers at holidays and for basically being a human. Could it be that? I wonder. You think there's some correlation to that in this study? So is it from having COVID or is it from the results of this crazy response to COVID? I'll let you decide. I know what I think. Uh, what are we doing on time here? Oh, we probably should get going on the book review, but it seems like there was something else I wanted to talk about. COVID related, obviously. Um, oh, actually, one more thing on COVID. The thing I wanted to talk about, though, wasn't COVID, but one more thing on COVID. Um, one year after media mocked Trump's sunlight comments, researchers find it's eight times more effective than thought. And I touched on this on another podcast, but just to reiterate, President Donald Trump, who speculated last year that sunlight might neutralize the coronavirus, has been vindicated as a recent study claims UV rays may actually kill the virus eight times faster than previously believed. UC Santa Barbara released its findings of a multi-university study this past week, which took an in-depth look at the role sunshine plays in neutralizing active viral particles. 
In a letter in the Journal of Infectious Diseases, a team of researchers from UC Santa Barbara, Oregon State University, University of Manchester, and ETH Zurich examines another of SARS-CoV-2's well-known characteristics, its vulnerability to sunlight. Their conclusion? It might take more than UVB rays to explain sunlight inactivation of SARS-CoV-2, the university noted. When blasting the virus in synthetic saliva with UVB light in a lab setting, researchers set out to test a theory that, if predictions were accurate, might have seen sunlight inactivation of SARS-CoV-2 occur with prolonged exposure to ultraviolet rays. So the moral of this story is get out and get some sunshine and some fresh air this summer. Because it sounds like that that's one of the best things you can do and definitely better than getting the jab. One more thing I wanted to mention that's not COVID related and something that I cannot believe has not been made a bigger deal out of, which leads me to believe that a lot of people may not even be aware of this because the news, the big techs are squashing this information. But BLM co-founder buys a $1.4 million home in an affluent neighborhood where less than 2% of the population is black. The co-founder of the polarizing Black Lives Matter movement is under fire for buying a $1.4 million home in a posh California neighborhood that's 88% white. It's an interesting decision for Patrice Cullors, a self-professed Marxist and race-baiting activist who has paid lip service to promoting black pride. According to Dirt.com, the home is located in Topongo, Canyon, Canyon, an idyllic, rustic neighborhood about 48 minutes outside of Los Angeles and less than 30 minutes from Tony Malibu. Color's new home has three bedrooms and two baths and sits on one quarter of an acre. The property also has a separate one bedroom, one bathroom guest house. But what is most interesting is that the BLM co-founder chose to live in Tobanga, where less than 2% of the population is black. Black Lives Matter founder buys $1.4 million home in Tobanga, which has a black population of 1.4%. She's with her people, journalist Jason Whitlock said. So, Whitlock pointed out that Colors could have lived anywhere, and in fact, she could have made an important political statement if she had chosen to live in a predominantly black neighborhood, but she didn't. And that she says, and that says something about whether she truly believes that black lives matter. She had a lot of options on where to live. She chose one of the whitest places in California. She'll have her pick of white cops and white people to complain about. That's a choice, bro. So the hypocrisy, so blatant. Think of all the good that Black Lives Matter could have done with the billions of dollars it raised after the George Floyd incident. Think of all that money that could have been donated and poured into these black communities to help the, you know, to help black kids get a better education, a better future, you know, um, make some neighborhood improvements, hire some more police officers. There's so much good that could have been done with that money, but nope, nope. That's not what this person decided to do. She took that money that was raised on behalf 
of all the people that think black lives are impacted negatively. And she spent it on herself. That's just priceless, isn't it? Just priceless. Where's the outrage? That's what I want to know. I'm outraged on your behalf. That's so blatantly wrong. I don't know, guys. Do what I say, not as I do. I just, it's unbelievable to me that we're allowing this stuff to happen. We just excuse it away. Act like it's no big deal. When in fact, it is a very big deal. Okay, let's move on to the book review of the week. So I'm getting a little behind in my reading. I'm now two books behind on my Goodreads goal of 55 books for the year. So I need to step up the pace a little bit. But I finished a book this morning called An Unfinished Story by Boo Walker. A grieving widow and a disenchanted writer form an unexpected bond in a novel about second chances and finding the courage to let go of the past. It's been three years since Claire Kite lost her husband David, an aspiring novelist, in a tragic car accident. Claire finally finds the courage to move on, then she discovers among the remnants of her shattered world her husband's last manuscript. It's intimate, stirring, and unfinished. An idea comes to her. What if she could find someone to give David's novel the ending it deserves? Whitaker Grant is famous for his one and only best-selling novel, a masterpiece that became a hit film. But after being crippled by the pressure of success in his failed marriage, Whitaker retreated from the public eye in his native St. Petersburg, Florida. Years later, he's struggling through a deep midlife crisis until he receives an intriguing request from a lonely widow. To honor David's story, Whitaker must understand heart and soul the man who wrote it and the woman he left behind. There's more to the novel than anyone dreamed. Something personal, something true. Maybe in bringing a chapter of David's life to a close, Claire and Whitaker can find hope for a new beginning. I'm going to read chapter three from this story. I alluded to this um, on my blog. It's called Story Sentence. I give you a few sentences from a chapter and then I give you my thoughts of the story at that point in time. And so uh, these are the sentences I put on my blog from chapter three. I'm going to read it to you now. Chapter three from an unfinished uh, story by Boo Walker. It's calling Saving Orlando. After locking up, Claire climbed into her convertible and drove north back toward the Don Caesar Hotel. David's novel rode shotgun. Claire couldn't help but see the parallels between her adult life and that of the hotel. Opening in the late 20s, the Pink Palace was welcomed with a flurry of excitement, drawing the rich and famous from all over the world. Those booming times were like the first years of Claire's marriage to David. After fighting off the early impact of the Great Depression, the untimely death of the hotel's owner had led it on a downward path of disrepair only to be bought for a song by the U.S. Army, who converted it into a military hospital during World War II. Shortly after, the Army even abandoned the building. The southern sunshine and salt air had eaten away at this glorious feat of architecture over the subsequent 30 years. That was just about how Claire felt right now, exhausted and worn down. But there was a bright side. 
New owners in the 70s and renovations over the next few decades have restored the Don Caesar to its former glory, and the hotel was back in business. Claire hoped the Don story was just a few years ahead of her own. Claire's new house was on the beach side of the main drag, still a half mile from the Don, but only two blocks from the sand. After David died, knowing she could never spend another night in their house, she rented a spacious two-bedroom condo downtown. But a few months ago, as part of her intended comeback, which felt like the 11th round of a boxing match, Claire had committed to rediscovering her love of the beach and started to house hunt. Amid, hidden amid giant super mansions with fast cars in the driveway, her little two-bedroom was a dreamy place to live for a single woman in need of healing. She'd been fortunate enough to see the real estate agent hammering the for sale sign into the grass and was signing papers that same afternoon. How about that for spontaneity? Her new home was simple and beachy with a brick chimney and a tin roof that sang in the rain. A quick bike ride away from the cafe, a two-minute walk to the sand, a perfect place to relaunch. She parked her car on the street and with the box of David's possessions resting under one arm, circled to the front porch. Though not as chic as her cafe on the outside, her bungalow was certainly bohemian. Seashells, dream catchers, and driftwood. Claire had only been here two months but had read at least four books in the hammock and rocking chairs while breathing in the salt air. She kicked aside an Amazon delivery and entered the living room. Guess who's home? Her one-eyed tabby cat named Willie jumped down from the back of the couch, stopping on the cushion before landing on the rug. Claire put her things down on the coffee table and reached down to swoop him up. I hope you're having a better day than I am. She held him to her chest and bathed in his purrs as she ran her hand along his back. Following the last hurricane, Claire had raced back to pass a grill after the evacuation to make sure the cafe had survived. She'd found Willie hiding on the patio with a hurt eye, probably a result of flying debris. The vet who'd stitched him up guessed he was about two years old. Claire considered Willie to be one of the great blessings of her life. You wouldn't believe what I found, Claire said, setting Willie down. He followed her through the house as she related the events of the morning in brief. Throwing on a kimono, Claire made a cup of chamomile in the 70s retro kitchen made most apparent by the vivid orange counters. The one picture she had of David and her from the summer they met caught her eye. It hung on the wall above the counter. Being 14, she had the bird legs of a skinny teenager and wore blue rolled-up shorts and a t-shirt with a palm tree on it. The photo had been taken when Claire had flown down from Chicago to St. Pete to spend a month with her grandmother, Betty. Betty seemed to always have one foot in the sand and had introduced Claire to the magical properties of the Gulf. Every morning they'd scour the, the beach in search of shark's teeth and starfish and then settle into chairs under an umbrella to read until lunch. Claire could still taste the salty tears she shed on the return plane home at the end of the summer. Not only had she fallen in love with the beach, but she'd fallen in love with the boy on the beach. The young man in the photograph was five shades tanner than her, with hairy legs and as handsome as could be. He'd grown up in a huge family in Tampa, and they'd rented a beach house every summer on Pasigrill. He'd seen her walking the beach by herself and said hello, her first love. They saw each other again the next summer, but then the flightiness of youth and the miles between Florida and Illinois proved to be too great to carry the relationship forward. They lost touch, and Claire didn't see him again for 10 years. 
At the age of 25, after Claire's father had died and she'd sold the diner, she moved south, taking a job assisting a wedding photographer. During one of her first shoots, David was one of the groomsmen. He took one knee later that year and she said yes. The whistling pot brought her back to the present. After dunking the tea bag up and down and then discarding it, Claire carried the cup back into the living room where she fished out the composition books. It was time to read. Moving to the porch, Claire settled into a rocking chair with Willie curled up on her lap. She petted him while sipping her tea, smoking another cigarette, and watching the cars with out-of-state license plates pass. When she was ready, she thumbed through the pages she'd already read, found the second chapter, and fell back into David's story, back into his arms. He hadn't let her read his old mysteries, insisting that they were trash, but now she wondered. Maybe she could dig those up, too. David had been such a good writer. She knew that from his emails and letters he'd written over the years, but to read a story he'd created caught her off guard. He'd had true talent. Claire burned through the first composition book in two hours. Willie had settled onto his favorite perch, a bamboo table by the door. Climbing into the hammock, Claire tore into the next book. A notion settled in. David had written this book as some sort of cathartic exercise, a way to heal from his pain. He'd put all the hurt she didn't know he had into these pages, the sadness of being infertile, of never becoming a father. It wasn't a sad story by any means, anything but. Claire felt great inspiration pulling for the main characters, but disguised in those words were the layers of David she hadn't known existed. David Hesta wanted to be a father, even after he and Claire had agreed to stop trying. She'd forced him to stop bringing it up, to let go of the idea of parenthood, and she thought he'd been on the same page, that he'd moved on. Claire's bottom lip quivered as it became all too clear that her husband had never gotten over their misfortune, his low sperm count. After their attempts to get pregnant and the grueling effects of negative results, and then what they believed was a sure thing adoption that fell apart at the last moment, Claire had drawn a line in the sand. As difficult as it had been to say goodbye to her hopes of one day becoming a mother, she felt she knew what was best for them. I don't want to talk about babies anymore, David. We have to let this go. I'm too hurt. I'm tired of being picked and pried apart, and I can't take one more up and down. Being the wonderful, loving, and supportive husband that David was, he'd given her a tight hug, encasing her with his love. All I need is you, baby. The man who'd grown up, the oldest of five. The man who was an uncle to seven and counting. Her husband who had confessed to wanting four children, two boys and two girls, on their first date. All I need is you. Clearly he needed more. David was the man in the story and this was his way to experience fatherhood. Claire knew exactly why he hadn't let her read what he was working on if she had. She would have known how much he'd been suffering and without question she would have blamed herself. But the guilty feelings weren't enough to keep her from reading. As the sun fell and she reached the third composition book a budding idea took, for, took firm home took firm hold. One of the most painful parts of grief and loss was how the memory dimmed. The legacy faded. Shortly after David had died, their house had filled with people. Casserole spilled out of both refrigerators and freezers. Each day, lines of people had come to pay their respects, reaching a giant crescendo at the funeral, where hundreds of people turned out. A few weeks later, Claire hadn't had as many visitors. She hadn't received as many phone calls. Most of the casserole she either eaten or given away. Soon it was the occasional drop by from her dearest friends. 
Six months later, David's memory was fading, and by the year anniversary of his death, his name was barely uttered. Here she was, three years later, and even she was supposed to have moved on. The buildings he designed, which Claire would always stop and admire, were all that would survive. Well, and his dark, and his desk and chair, and his book. Claire had the idea that if she could get it published for him, she'd find a way to keep him alive, or at least it would be a way to preserve his legacy, more words than any gravestone could hold. And perhaps it would help quell the the guilt that was bubbling down in her depths. Maybe she could make right her wrong. Claire returned to the final pages. She could feel the end of his story coming and hadn't felt so invested in the characters of a book in her entire life. Had David intended this to be the last draft? She'd never know, but the story might be publishable as it was. Why hadn't he shared it with her yet? And then there were no more words. Halfway through the third book, the story stopped mid-sentence. Claire flipped through the blank pages, hoping to find more words. Nothing. Leaving Willie back inside, Claire ran to her car and under the glow of the moon, sped across St. Pete. She so hoped this wasn't a sad story. Was that why he wouldn't let her read it? When she reached their home, she ran up the stairs and raced into his office. She spent the next two hours searching for more words. Where were the other drafts? Had he tossed them? Had he hidden them somewhere? She moved around his office like a madwoman, desperately pulling books off the shelf, opening drawers. She even knocked on the walls and floors, looking for hollow spots. It was soon evident that he had not finished this story. He died with words left to give, a story still to tell. No one would ever know how it ended. Lying on the floor amid the boxes of his books, Claire cried herself to sleep. She woke puffy-eyed in the middle of the night, not quite aware of her location. Whitaker Grant's book, the one inscribed to David, lay next to her head, lit up in the moonlight. She stared at it for for a long while as her eyes and mind adjusted. The realization of what she intended to do wrapped around her like David's arms when he last came to find her at the end of the dock. For perhaps the first time since he died, she felt hope, an, an almost impossible hope, like discovering a lost diamond ring in the waves. It was as if she suddenly found the answer she'd been looking for, and Claire was shocked, even saddened, that she'd waited three years to go through his office. This book had been lying in a drawer collecting dust for three long years. His unfinished dream. As though wearing blinders, she felt a desperate need to get this book finished. And Whitaker Grant was the one to do it. She knew that with all her heart, as if David had appeared to tell her so. Thank you.
in a lot of ways, I kind of feel like the story should have started at chapter three, to be honest. Um, because for me, the story really picked up and got a lot more interesting after chapter three. And that was the part that I focused on when I wrote my blog post on writefromkaren.com. That's W-R-I-T-E from Karen.com. Um, so yeah, at first it was meh. I wasn't overly, I mean, I didn't overly like it or dislike it. It was just like, yeah, whatever. Um, literary fiction, I, I somewhat enjoy reading it. I think it can get a little boring, but it's a good genre to go to when you need to cleanse your palate from mysteries and thrillers and romances, really, which are the other genres that I read. Um, because, you know, that can get a little old and repetitive after a while. So I like to throw in some literary fiction once in a while to just cleanse the reading palette and um, kind of, you know, um, clear the field for the next disturbing gross book <laughs> that I read. Um, so yes, I'm glad I stuck with it. It got better. And the premise was interesting that, um, you know, her dead husband left this book behind that was unfinished and she felt compelled, almost possessed (laughs) or obsessed, uh, with getting it done to honor his memory because she felt like she, she let him down by, not continuing to try for a child. They both really wanted one and they were both really sad. They couldn't have one and she just couldn't go through the mental anguish of trying to get a child. So she stopped and didn't want to talk about it or try anymore. And she felt like that was selfish on her part because she felt that way. But David obviously, you know, wanted to try adopting or uh, any other avenue to try to build a family with her. So she felt guilty for this. And so that's why she's so obsessed with trying to get this book published. And she chose Whitaker Grant because uh, I guess David went to one of his signings and he, he signed a book for him and the book was there and it just was like an omen for her. She's like, Oh, what a great person to go and ask uh, to finish this book. Whitaker Grant wrote that, that one hit wonder basically And then the pressure of repeating that performance stifled him so much that he really couldn't write and didn't write for 10 years. Uh, So he was very hesitant to take on the project. Now, Whitaker is a very interesting character. He is the neurotic, funny, odd, uh, a little bit of a whiner character that is typically characterized with the woman, the female in the story. So it was refreshing to have this character be the man. Um, But it was also highly annoying. (laughs) I lost patience with him a few times because he was just such a whiner. I just wanted to slap him and say snap out of it, dude. Um, But you couldn't help but like him. And I think that Walker did a great job of making him likable. Uh, Claire was almost the secondary character, even though she was the main character of the story. And that I felt like Whitaker really overshadowed her. He was definitely the more interesting of the two. I will say that. Um, In some ways, I almost feel like it should have been Whitaker's story and not Claire's. But again, Walker does a good job of intertwining these two stories together 
so that um, it's it's a good ending. And it, it even brought a tear to my eye. I'm going to admit it. <laughs> I'm not going to spoil it, obviously. Um, there is a little bit of a twist. Um, and it was, uh, it was fun watching them put the puzzle pieces together and kind of figure out where David was going with that story. So yes, it's a good read. Yes, I would recommend it if you're looking for something kind of soft and more literary fiction-esque as opposed to any genre fiction that you might come across. Uh, It's a little bit of a slow read, especially at first, but if you stick with it, I think it'll be interesting for you. I did give it a four stars out of five. I almost gave it three, but then I was moved to emotion (laughs) there at the end. So I bumped it to a four because uh, the ending was pretty good. If not cheesy, it was a little cheesy, but it was still pretty good. So, you know, yeah, if you're looking for kind of a soft read about grief, I mean, if you're experiencing grief, I don't know if I would recommend it, but uh, it's a pretty good story otherwise. So moving on to my week, been very busy at work. Um, We're about to be shorthanded a lot of people. The month of May is going to be very challenging for me at work. I work in healthcare. I'm a medical assistant for neurosurgery. In case you're wondering what I do is my day job. And so I'm a little preoccupied with figuring out the coverage for all of us during that time period, we're going to be down, I think three or four MAs during that time period. So I'm anticipating that I'm going to be in clinic probably three or four times a week, which right now I'm in clinic twice a week um, with my surgeon. Also, we have a new doctor starting her practice that she is asking my help with, which I'm very flattered that she wants my help. And I'm looking forward to helping her build her practice. So I'll be busy um, kind of helping her next week because she'll be seeing her first patients next week. And um, I was asked by my boss to potentially be the preceptor for the MAs in the future to train the, the MAs in the future, which I'm really excited about. So a lot of opportunities. I'm going to be very busy at work, uh, probably get some overtime, which I'm kind of happy about because, you know, it looks good for the paycheck, but I'm going to have, I'm going to be retired. So hopefully I can keep up with my blog, my Patreon and my podcast in the meantime, which by the way, if you didn't know, I do have a Patreon. It's patreon.com forward slash right from Karen. If you're interested, it's all about writing, writing and writers and getting together and starting a writing group of, you know, people that like to write. We can talk about writing and maybe exchange each other's work. I do have a Discord server that um, if you join tier two or three, you can get an invitation to. We can chit chat there, uh, start a book club, talk about various books and how, it, you know, what we learn from it, what we can maybe use for our own writing and all kinds of fun stuff. So there's that if you're interested. And 
And let's see, the trailer's coming along nicely. My husband's doing a fantastic job of putting it all together. And I will be um, filming that soon to give you kind of a walkthrough of our progress so far. And you can find that on my blog, which is writefromkaren.com. My blog, by the way, is just a place where I put all my personal, professional reading, writing, politics, religion, opinions on if you're interested in following me there as well. Um, and then I'm going to just leave off with a few fun things here. My husband and I do this on our podcast together, and I think it's a lot of fun. I think it's an opportunity to get to know um, me. <laughs> If you're interested, after listening to me rant and rave for an hour. Um, but this is from conversationstartersworld.com. I love this website. It's got a lot of interesting questions to ask. I think it opens up a bunch of topics that you might not talk about otherwise. And this is called the, the this or that questions. So just a few. I won't keep up. I won't keep you for too much longer. I we're coming up on an hour here. But um, pop or indie? Um, as far as music, I'm assuming what they mean by this. I like both. Actually, I like all kinds of music. Um, country is okay. I like the newer country. Not a big fan of the old country. Love pop. Love indie. Um, anything with a beat. Anything that makes me tap my foot that kind of thing. Um, I am not, however, crazy about rap, like at all, like at all. <laughs> I just, it's hard for me to get into basically talking. You're basically talking to a beat. I'd rather you stop talking and I just listen to the beat. So not a big fan of rap at all. Um, big party or small gathering? Depends. If I want to blend in, definitely a big party. Then I can just kind of blend into the background and hang out with a few people that I know. Um, small gathering, I don't know. It depends if it's family or friends. Sure, why not? That sounds like fun. But if it's a small gathering of strangers, no. I would rather have my eye gouged out. <laughs> I'm not a big, I'm definitely an introvert. I am not an extrovert, which I know seems weird since I'm doing this podcast and I'm on my blog and I'm on Patreon, but whatever. Um, hmm, let's see. Football or basketball? That's an interesting one. I'm not a sports person. Uh, I'm not opposed to them. I am more opposed to them now because just because so many athletes are being stupid and taking a knee and, you know, basically punching the face of the person who's paying them. I mean, I feel like if you're selling a product or you're an athlete and you're playing a game, let's just stick to what you know. Okay. Just leave politics out of it. But that aside, I like actually like both football and basketball. Um, hmm. I don't know if I could say I like one or the other better. Basketball is definitely faster and it's more challenging to keep up with. <laughs> um, but football is fun to watch them watch all the tight ends. Let's all go. We'll just leave it at that. I'm not, however, a baseball fan. I cannot stand baseball. 
just because it's so slow and it's so boring. Um, work hard or play hard? Both. I think that you, if you're working hard, you should enjoy the fruits of your labor and go um, splurge and spoil yourself. Nice car or nice home interior? Definitely the nice home interior. I could care less about a nice car. I just want a dependable car. I want a car that can get me from point A to point B with little to no trouble. And I've been very fortunate with my cars in the past, but Kevin has spoiled me and and has agreed to let me buy brand new cars. So my cars I drive for seven to 10 years and then they trade them in for something else. So I rarely have car trouble just because I buy them new and I don't drive them very often. I think, let's see, my car is a 2017, I believe. I drive a Buick Encore and I have just now almost reached 18,000 miles. If that gives you any indication of how little I drive. My job is about two miles from where, from where I live. So, and since I'm always just going home and working from home to work, work to home. Um, I mean, I, there's, I haven't put very many miles on my car. So it's in great shape and it will probably continue to be in great shape for many years to come. Um, so don't really care much about cars. And I mean, so a nice home interior for sure. I wish I was a better decorator. I wish I was more like my sister-in-law who is fantastic at home decorating. She should be a home decorator for sure. Um, but it's nice. We live in a nice, comfortable house and it's just a house that people, when they come over, they feel comfortable kicking off their shoes and just being comfortable. I mean, it's not a, it's not a museum, you know, it's not a house where you go and you're afraid to touch anything. Um, because everything's has its place and it looks spick and span. We're just a very comfortable, homey kind of country-ish house. And I really like it. Uh, what's worse laundry or dishes? Oh, definitely dishes. I don't mind laundry. Laundry does not bother me whatsoever. Jogging or hiking? Well, definitely hiking. Um, I like to hike. I really do. I think it's fun. I like to walk a lot. I'm a big walker. I am not a jogger. I would love to actually be a jogger, but I am not because I just don't feel like I had the lung capacity for it. And I don't want to ruin my knees. I know that sounds so old, but jogging is hard on your knees. So no thanks. Bath or shower? Oh my gosh. 100% shower. I cannot stand baths. I cannot stand it. The thought of sitting in your filth just makes me, it just grosses me out. Gross. No, thank you. Shower. 100%. Um, glasses or contacts? Glasses. The thought of putting something in my eyeball makes me cringe. Sneakers or sandals? Um, both, really. I like wearing sandals, but my feet are not very pretty. So I always feel a little self-conscious when I wear sandals, but sneakers all the way. Plus, I pretty much live in them every day because of scrubs and sneakers. Okay, that's probably enough for today. <laughs> let's not let's not give you too much because it's just, I mean, it gets old, right? It does. Well, let's wrap this up. I 
I appreciate your time and I appreciate you clicking on here and listening to me. If you made it this far, good for you. Clap on the back because, you know, not many people probably do. (laughs) But I appreciate your time and your attention. I hope you have an excellent week. Be alert, not anxious. And I will talk to you soon. Bye.